William Miller was a Baptist preacher in the 19th century and was known for both a following that bore his name and an event that took place. The Millerites were a group of people who followed William Miller and his teaching. He distributed literature across the United States and Canada and promoting his views on when Jesus would return. Uh, He initially had narrowed it down to between 1840 and 1844, but as his movement gained steam and as more people got involved, he felt a little bit of pressure to make it more specific. He studied Daniel chapter 8 and chapter 9, and out of the numbers there, he calculated that Jesus was coming back on October the 22nd, 1844. And so his followers had this great buildup to this event. Some of them sold everything that they had because no use for possessions if Jesus is going to come and take you to heaven. And uh, October 22nd, 1844 came and we're, we're all still here. It went and of course Jesus didn't come back. The event became known in hindsight as the great disappointment. And there was, some criti- there was lots of criticism and even some persecution of those people who had bought into this belief system. Some of them were disillusioned and left the movement altogether. Some of them tried to reframe their thinking and do some more recalculating to see what it is that they ought to think about this. Now, William Miller is not the only person who's predicted the day of Jesus' return. In fact, all through history, since Jesus left the first time, People have been consumed with trying to figure out when he's coming back. Uh, Early church theologian Irenaeus thought that Jesus was coming back in the year 500. Pope Sylvester II thought in the year 1000. And Isaac Newton thought the year 2000 would be when Jesus came back. Thomas Munzer, a notable Anabaptist in the 16th century, thought that the millennium would begin, meaning Jesus would come to reign for a thousand years on earth in a kind of paradise. He thought that was going to begin in 1525. John Wesley thought the same thing was going to begin in 1836. One of my favorites is Edgar Wisenant, who wrote the book, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. And when 1988 passed, he wrote a book called 89 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1989. No word as to whether or not he's still writing books. Future predictions include this year, 2021. And there's actually a website called Rapture Ready. If you go to this website, it shows a clock in the top right corner showing 11.55 p.m. Time is almost out. And it measures all kinds of world events that they believe are signs pointing to the return of Jesus. And they say the return of Jesus is imminent. In fact, there's a rapture index. They put a number on this to see how close Jesus actually is. And when I checked it just this last week, it was at an all-time high of 189 To give you a a sense of scale, they say that any number over 160 is equal to fasten your seatbelts. Jesus is coming soon. We as Christians are very consumed and concerned with the end times. And on one hand, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I I give these examples kind of tongue-in-cheek, but all, or at least most of them, were faithful followers of Jesus who were trying to interpret the scripture and, and trying to determine when Jesus is coming back. Because when Jesus comes back and sets all things right, it means that the evil and pain and suffering that we experience in this world will be over. So it's something that we naturally long for. When I was about 10 years old, the Left Behind books for kids came out. And I remember reading them and People disappearing in piles of clothes everywhere where people used to be, and they'd been taken up to heaven. They were gone. Uh, Even in this last year, we've had thoughts and people have talked about, is is this pandemic a sign that Jesus is coming soon? Uh, And we've even looked at at some world events and people think, well, that's a sign, like Jesus is, is about to come and 
And is the, something like the vaccine, is it a sign of the beast or something like that? Some people have wondered that. Or maybe a precursor to the sign of the beast that talks about in Revelation. So what are we supposed to think about all that? Today's story in Mark 13, Jesus is going to give us some instructions. And we're going to summarize it in this way. Don't be distracted. Be faithful. Don't be distracted. Be faithful. We're in this series we've called Find and Follow. We're journeying through the book of Mark. We're nearing the end of Jesus' life where he'll be crucified and then he'll rise from the dead. We're in that last week where he's in Jerusalem. And chapter 11 and 12, which we've studied in the last couple of weeks, have been largely concerned with Jesus condemning the temple and the religious system that it stands for, this, this dead religion that, that is consumed with works. Uh, Jesus has been criticizing it and also criticizing the religious leaders who are propagating this system, who are hypocrites in the way that they live and, and who are dragging people further away from God rather than dragging them toward God. And Jesus has been condemning it. And in this chapter, we're going to see Jesus con- condemns the temple and says it's actually going to be destroyed, physically destroyed. That's how the chapter starts. We've read it already. The disciples say to Jesus, look at this magnificent building. And they had great reason to say that. This was a magnificent building. King Herod had done extensive renovations on this building. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was built on a huge platform that was 300 meters wide and 500 meters long, 35 total acres in area. It was created out of massive stones. The Jewish historian Josephus says that one of these stones was 67 feet long. And these stones were brilliant white and other parts of the temple were covered in gold so that when the sun rose and reflected off of the temple, you actually couldn't look at it because it was so bright in its reflection. The southern end of the temple had 162 40-foot high columns set in four rows. And each of these columns was so large that it took three men to get their arms all the way around each of the columns. It was a magnificent building. And the disciples comment on how wonderful it is. And Jesus asked them, do you see these, this building? Do you see these, these stones? And Jesus isn't just saying, do you see them with your, your eyes? He's, he's, he's introducing a theme that will carry through this entire chapter. He says, do you actually see them for what they are? Do you see this building for what it represents? Did you not just hear how I've criticized this in the last couple of days? Do you have spiritual eyesight to see what's going on? So, the disciples then say, well, what are the signs that this temple is going to come down? That's what they ask for. What are the signs that this is going to happen? Jesus had just said the temple is going to come down, not one stone on top of the other. The disciple says, so how do we know it's coming? And that's how Jesus starts the chapter. Now, we need to say before we look at the actual text here, there are three what I'm going to call lenses that we need to look through as we evaluate what Jesus says here. Because we can interpret this entirely wrong. In fact, even as I studied it, I realized there are parts of it that I hadn't understood correctly. So three lenses. The first one is we have to recognize that there is deliberate ambiguity in this chapter. Jesus is not trying to solve all of the details for us. He's not giving us a calendar of events. In fact, he's not even giving us much in the way of signs. There's deliberate ambiguity all throughout. There are details that if you read the commentaries on this chapter, there are several different ways to interpret a lot of different things in this chapter. I'll give you an example. Chapter 14, Jesus says, When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand 
Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Well, what is Jesus talking about with the abomination that causes desolation? He's using a term that is used in Daniel, and he might be referencing something that happened pre-Jesus, but he might be referencing something that will happen before the temple is actually destroyed in the Roman Jewish war in AD 70. And the grammar here is odd as well. The, you, you probably have a note in your Bible where it says where it, where it refers to this abomination, standing where it does not belong. It probably should be read where standing where he does not belong. So it might actually be referring to a person and not actually a thing. So maybe it's referring to a Roman commander who came to attack the temple or, or maybe not. It's not really spelled out what exactly this thing is. And then Jesus throws in this phrase, let the reader understand, almost as a a bit of a nod to the fact that he thought people would probably misunderstand what this is about. So there's that kind of ambiguity in the chapter that Jesus actually builds into it. It shouldn't make us uncomfortable. It actually helps us to understand that Jesus isn't actually about giving us a lot of specifics here. Instead, he's saying, don't be distracted, be faithful. So let's recognize the ambiguity that exists. Second thing we need to to realize, the second lens that we need to look through is that this chapter is talking about at least two different events, right? The question the disciples ask is, what are the signs that the temple is about to be destroyed? And Jesus starts talking about that. We often read this chapter to, to refer only to the second coming of Jesus. And it does talk about that in spots, but at other parts, it's talking about the destruction of the temple. Both of these things are being talked about in this chapter. But then the third lens is that sometimes Jesus is doing what we can call prophetic layering. So I'll give you an example of this from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah says, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. It will be called Emmanuel. He'll have the titles of Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. We look at that and we think, well, that's Jesus he's talking about. And it is, but also there was a child born in Isaiah chapter 9 that fulfilled a lot of what Isaiah was talking about there. So Isaiah is saying this child is going to be born and then there is a child born. And then 700 years later, there's Jesus being born. But Isaiah is kind of layering these two things together. He's not saying, well, first I'm talking about the child that'll be born soon. And then I'm talking about the Messiah that will come. He's saying, he's saying the same thing about two different events. Jesus is doing the same. There's the destruction of the temple and there's the coming of the Son of Man. Now, the difference is we stand between these events. We don't stand on the other side of both of them. So to try and figure out what details are talking about which event takes some discernment and sometimes isn't entirely clear. So Jesus is layering these two things on top of each other. Sometimes he's talking specifically about the temple, sometimes specifically about the return of the Son of Man, and sometimes he's talking about both at the same time. So those are the three things we need to keep in mind as we approach the text. There's deliberate ambiguity. He's talking about at least two different events, and he's uh, layering these two things on top of each other. So I'll give you an outline of how I think this breaks down, how it makes the most sense, and then we'll talk about a few different details. I wish we had 90 minutes to talk about all of the intricacies of this passage because it's really quite fascinating how Jesus puts this together, Uh, but we'll have to stay a little bit uh, more above that. So the outline could go like this. Verses 1 to 4 is this conversation between Jesus and the disciples about the temple. Verses 5 to 23 then is about the destruction of the temple. That's largely what Jesus is talking about, though there is some of this layering going on in that section. Verses 24 to 27 there refer to the return of the Son of Man at the end of time. And then verses 28 to 37 contain two parables. The first one, the parable of the fig tree, refers back to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And the second one about the, the doorkeeper is, is actually about us. And that's where we'll, we'll end today uh, with our application. 
So we've looked a bit at verses 1 to 4 already. Let's look at verses 5 to 23. It starts with Jesus saying, watch out. Watch out. This is the main theme of the entire passage. Watch out. Jesus will say it uh, in verse 2. He's alluded to it. Do you see? Do you actually see? Now he's saying in verse 5, watch out. He'll repeat it in verse 9, verse 23, and verse 33. Watch out. Be alert. And when he says this, we can misunderstand this to say, watch out for the signs. But actually what Jesus is saying, watch out, meaning have spiritual discernment to know how to be faithful no matter what is going on. Because Jesus isn't about here giving us the signs of the end of time. And this is one way that I think we, we misunderstand this, right? Verses 7 and 8, when you hear wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be earthquakes in various places, famines. Might we add global pandemics into that list? These are the beginning of the birth pains. Okay, I think we've often read that, and I've often read that to say, okay, when I see these things happening, that means Jesus is coming soon. It's actually the opposite of what Jesus is saying. He says, these things are just a normal part of a broken world. There's a normal part of, of living where sin has its influence on the way people think and the way people act, and even on the creation itself. So don't be alarmed. Don't give in to speculation at those things that Jesus is coming soon. He might be coming soon, but it's not a sign that he's coming right away. It's just the beginning of the birth pains. It's not the actual childbirth. Right? When Jenny gave birth to our son, Josh, we went into the hospital because of birth pains at about 10 o'clock at night. Josh didn't arrive until almost 10 o'clock the next night. There was a lot of pain to come between the initial pain and the birth of the child. Jesus is saying these things are just a natural part of this world. It's not necessarily a sign that Jesus is coming right away. So don't get pulled into the speculation, right? Verse 5 and 6 talks about people who will claim with certainty that Jesus is coming or Jesus has come or even claim to be Jesus returned. Jesus says, don't get sucked into that kind of speculation. Instead, be faithful with whatever's in front of you. Mark Strauss says, Jesus doesn't give the disciples the confidential information that they want, but he does give them what they need. They need discernment to distinguish what has to do with the end of their own little worlds and what has to do with the end of the world. I think that parallels a thought I've had a number of times over the last year when we've looked through this pandemic and people have claimed that the end of the world is coming. I think we need to embrace what I've called a historical humility to understand that just because something difficult is happening to us doesn't mean it's the worst thing that's happened ever. In fact, people have gone through all kinds of terrible things since Jesus returned to heaven. And people will continue to experience terrible things. Just because it's happening to us doesn't mean it's a sign that the end is right away, or that it's coming. Tim Gettert says this, This chapter is not about signs. It's actually about the unavailability of signs. In fact, when, when the disciples ask for a sign that the temple is going to be destroyed, the only sign that Jesus refers to is this abomination that causes desolation. And that sign is only given so that they will know, hey, when the war starts, you need to get out of there. Because it's going to be awful. And some people are going to run to the temple. In fact, there are going to be false prophets who say you should go to the temple because that's where you'll be protected. That's where God will protect you. But actually, God's judgment is on this place and you need to get out of there. That's the only real sign that Jesus gives to the disciples. So it's not about mapping the signs. 
It's about being faithful with whatever's in front of you. Jesus warns uh, the disciples that suffering will be a part of what comes next. And here's where we can see some of that prophetic layering. There will be intense suffering when the temple is destroyed. And there will also be suffering that will characterize the, the existence of believers between now and when Jesus comes again. This shouldn't be surprising. There will be persecution. Even families will be torn apart because of people's allegiance to Jesus. But suffering, says Jesus, brings an opportunity It brings an opportunity to share the gospel. You will have the opportunity to stand in front of people of influence to explain your position. And if you look at the book of Acts, this is how the gospel was spread. Jesus' instructions to them was, stay in Jerusalem till you receive the Holy Spirit, then go to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, the disciples were mostly located in Jerusalem until persecution came, and then they scattered. And the gospel was spread to all of those different areas, and churches were started. There was an opportunity because of this suffering. So the question is, will you be faithful if persecution comes? The story of a a woman uh, in the 16th century, an Anabaptist, who was reading the scripture for herself, which was not allowed in those days, according to the Catholic Church at the time. And she was preaching about what it was that she was reading, and she was questioned, and she was... um, Uh, tortured, and for six months she was instructed never to do this again, but she would not relent. She said, I will not stop reading the scripture, and I will not stop declaring it. So finally, the authorities said, well, the, the punishment for this is to be burned at the stake. And for this woman, the, the, uh, the condition of this burning of the stake was that on the way to the stake, her tongue was to be screwed to the top of her mouth so that she would not proclaim the gospel on her way to her death. Her teenage son was present at this uh, burning, and he actually fainted as the flames started. But when he came to and the ashes cooled, he picked his way through the ashes and he found the screw and he said, they will never silence me. I will always speak about the name of Jesus. Friends, I hope and pray that that doesn't happen to us in our country, that persecution reaches that level. But let me assure you, it's reached that level around the world in many places. Yes, religious gatherings are currently banned, but this is not the kind of persecution that happens around the world. And let me tell you that if it comes to the point where our government tells us that we cannot meet and there is no reason such as a pandemic to hold us back, we will find a way to meet together. We will find a way to spread the name of Jesus. And if we are dragged in front of judges and juries to explain our position, we will rely on the Holy Spirit to give us the words that we need to say. And he will give us opportunity. Will we be faithful if persecution arises? Now, Jesus makes an interesting comment here uh, in verse 10 that the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Now remember, he's still talking about the destruction of the temple here. The gospel must first be preached to all nations. And so some people have said, well, what does Jesus actually mean by that? Because I think many of us think, well, Jesus won't come back until every single person on the earth has heard the gospel. Well, you could understand it that way, or you could understand that that Jesus is saying, before the temple is destroyed, the gospel needs to be preached to all nations. And there are a few verses, such as Colossians 1.23, where Paul seems to reference that that happened. He says in verse 23, do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. 
and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So if Jesus is referring to these areas surrounding Jerusalem, then perhaps that has been fulfilled before the temple was destroyed. But perhaps it means that we need to keep preaching the gospel until everyone's heard because God won't come. But if that's how you're going to understand it, you have to also accept then that that God is actually dependent upon us before he's going to come again. Or you could even understand it a third way to say, Jesus is highlighting for us the priority of mission. We always ought to be concerned about mission and evangelism. I think that probably makes the most sense. That we're always concerned about spreading the gospel. Tim Geddert says this, As long as history goes on, believers are to be preoccupied with mission in the context of persecution. Always spreading the word of God. So after this, Jesus shifts very clearly to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. He starts talking about the events and what people should do, run away, uh, and so on and so forth. Now, this Roman-Jewish war happened in the late 60s AD. And in 70 AD, the Romans laid siege to Jerusalem and to the temple. There are some brutal stories of what actually happened in that war. Uh, While the Jews had had some success early in the war, this was very clearly the Romans' path to victory here. They laid a seven-month siege on the city. They burned the food going into the city. There were brutal conditions. Josephus, the historian, describes great horrors. He says the Romans crucified so many Jews that they ran out of wood for crosses. Inside the walls, there was extreme infighting, murder, famine, disease, even cannibalism. Okay, Mark writes this when the world was falling apart. He probably wrote this book in the early 60s. The signs of of the upcoming war were already becoming apparent. The world was falling apart then, just as we might think the world is falling apart now. Verse 24, Jesus shifts then to the coming of the Son of Man. Uh, All the way up to verse 27. Jesus says in verse 24, In those days, following that distress. Now, there's no timeline really given here, except that it's following that distress of the destruction of the temple. Now, the New Testament refers to the end times as everywhere between when Jesus went back to heaven and when Jesus comes again. So when people say, are we living in the end times? The answer is yes. And we have been for 2,000 years already. In those days, following the distress. And then um, Jesus quotes a couple of Old Testament passages from Isaiah and Joel, apocalyptic images. And this imagery is describing what happens when Jesus will come again. Now, this isn't given as a sign. We're not supposed to look for the sun to darken and the moon to not give its light and stars to fall from the sky and say, Jesus is about to come. No, these will accompany Jesus. So when we see them, it's too late. Jesus is here. Now, how metaphorically or how literally we're to take these signs, it's it's not really spelled out for us. But something like this will accompany the return of Jesus. Now, here's the point though. The anticipation of the coming of the Son of Man fills us with great hope. It fills us with hope, right? Jesus says at that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. For those who have persevered through suffering, for those who have staked their claim on Jesus, for those who have followed him wholeheartedly and given everything for him, 
There is vindication. There is deliverance. And there is great reward. Jesus is coming to gather those who have put their trust in him. Who have counted on him for their salvation. Who have accepted his death and resurrection as the forgiveness of their sin. And who have followed him wholeheartedly and he will gather them together. And we will be with him forever. And the pain of the world, the pandemics and the the wars and the earthquakes and the famines and all of those things will fade into the background. Friends, this is what should give us hope. This is what should motivate us to continue to live in the way that Christ calls us to. Because we know that the reward is at the end. So don't be distracted. Be faithful. No matter what circumstance you find yourself in, don't be distracted. Be faithful. Verses 28 to 37, then Jesus concludes with a couple of parables. The first one, the parable of the fig tree, Uh, refers back to the um, destruction of the temple. And we know this because in verse 30, Jesus says, Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Now, some people think that refers to the second coming, in which case you have to explain what Jesus means by this generation will all pass away. And there are some solutions that people have tried to come up with. I think it makes most sense that Jesus is looking at his four disciples and saying, All of this distress that's going to happen with the temple, none of the people in this generation will pass away before that happens. A generation in that time was 40 years, and about 40 years later, almost exactly, is when the temple was destroyed after Jesus said this. Within a generation, this is happening, and it does. But then Jesus tells a parable about the gatekeeper, the doorkeeper. And he starts by saying, not even the Son of Man knows the day or the hour. The angels in heaven don't know. The son doesn't know. Only the father. Now that could make us uncomfortable to say, why doesn't Jesus know? We're reminded though in Philippians that when Jesus came to earth, he emptied himself of some aspects of his divinity. This seems like it's probably one of them, that Jesus had given up that knowledge to come to earth. What it does tell us for sure though, is that if Jesus doesn't know and the angels don't know, we don't know either. And to pretend that we do know, is to be distracted from the call to faithful discipleship. So Jesus says, uh, it's like a man going away, puts servants in in charge of his house. Each of them has an assigned task. And he tells the ones at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch because you don't know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. Interestingly, these are the four watches of the night. And we're about to read the crucifixion narrative where through these four watches of the night, the disciples are continually falling asleep or abandoning Jesus. If he comes suddenly, don't let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Again, not watching for signs, watching for opportunities to be faithful in whatever context you're living in. So what does it mean to watch? What does it mean to be ready? Let's look at a couple of other 
New Testament passages that help us a little bit. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 4 to 11 says this, But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day, the coming of Jesus, should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of light and children of the day. We don't belong to the night or the darkness. So then let us be, not be like the others who are asleep. But let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as in fact you are doing. So what does it mean to be ready? It means to be sober. That, that word in the New Testament usually means to be clear-minded, to be thinking clearly. It means to, to operate with faith and love and hope. That's what it means to watch, to be ready. Or we could think of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. What does it mean to be ready? Paul says, be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. And do everything in love. If we think about what Mark has taught us, over all of these chapters, we've seen over and over again that there's two main themes in the book of Mark, the identity of Jesus. And what we see from this chapter is that Jesus is the Son of Man who will return again to gather those who have put their faith in him. And the second theme is discipleship, what it means to follow him. And through all of these stories, we've gained a picture of what it means to follow Jesus, to love Jesus, with, to, to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves to give everything to him, to hold what we own with open hands, to hold our very lives with open hands, to embrace suffering as a part of the discipleship journey, to persevere through difficulty, always fixing our eyes on the one who gave himself for us, fixing our eyes on the one who rescued us from sin and who will rescue us from this dark world, following him with everything that we have, focusing on him rather than the wrong things. If this chapter is going to teach us anything about the end times, it's going to teach us that trying to pinpoint when Jesus comes back is a waste of our time and a distraction from discipleship. Certainly when we read apocalyptic literature like this chapter and like the book of Revelation, it raises lots of questions. Discussing those questions and thinking about those questions is natural. And there's a place for us to do that. But Jesus is saying, hey, you're not going to figure out when I'm coming back. So in whatever circumstance you find yourself, whether it's in the middle of a war or the middle of a pandemic, whether you're going through smooth sailing in life, don't be distracted. Be faithful. So two questions to end our time together then. The first question is this, how have you been distracted by end time speculation? Have you? And if so, what did that look like for you? And the second question, and we'll invite some response in the chat if you're watching with us on Sunday morning, how can you live in such a way that you are ready for Jesus at any time? How can you live in such a way that you are ready for Jesus at any time? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we put our hope in you because we know that you are coming back. We know that you have rescued us from sin, 
And we know that you will restore all things. Help us to fully put our hope in you. Even in these these strange times and when we see things happening in our world that are painful or difficult, may we not be overly distracted by those things, but instead put our attention fully on you and follow you wholeheartedly in whatever context we might be. Thank you for your word, which teaches us and guides us and is so powerful in our lives. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.